Everybody has a story of happiness. Maybe you haven't thought about it yet, what that would be. But I'm going to start by just sharing mine briefly. And I want you to think as you listen, what is your pathway to happiness? Happiness is part genetics and it is part skills building. It's about 50% genetic. And you may say, I'm just not a happy person. But you're here for a reason, and you're on a pathway, and you still have at least 50% of nurture, meaning choices in life, developing habits. So when I was four years old, I started a preschool program, and my parents had immigrated from the country of Cyprus. They had gone to Minneapolis, they had gone to Maryland, and then they came to Tennessee. And they lived in this little house that they rented across the street from the railroad tracks. And the house would shake every time the train would come by. I remember this. And they put me in this school. And up until then, I had only spoken Greek with my parents. So here I am in this school and I can't communicate. So what happened is my mom would tell me, say Galimera Vascala, which in Greek, it means good morning teacher. And I would repeat those foreign English words. And, but my thinking was all in Greek. And I go up to the teacher so proud that I had those words and it would come out in Greek. And I would walk out in shame, just so embarrassed. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is an action, okay? I did something and I was wrong to do it and I feel guilt. I didn't do anything wrong. Shame is I'm a bad person because I did that. And I internalized that and that affected me. And I'm self-diagnosing. I was never put in counseling or diagnosed. Back then we used to call it shyness. She's just shy. I was really quiet in school. That affected me. And I call myself an introvert, but I get energy from people and being around people. So I'm very extroverted as well. And I just wonder how much of that was this this event that it was experienced as trauma in my life because I was quiet. There's also another term that's clinical called selective mutism, where you just don't speak. But I did speak at home. I was a different person at home because I was in my element and it was my culture and my language. So I had a really hard time transitioning. Um, and so when I'm talking to you about these habits, just know that I've come a long way to even be able to speak in front of people, record in front of a camera. I was quiet through college, even in my classes. Imagine that getting a degree in social work and you're just quiet. Um, and so I'm here to say there's hope and we can all go on a happiness journey and build skills. Now, something happened in the classroom when I was four we were painting. So imagine a bunch of four-year-olds and they put paint and easels, actual wooden easels, and then the canvas. And so here we are painting and promise you I didn't spill the paint, but somebody spilled the paint and I stepped all in it and I got it all over me. And so the teachers said, you spilled the paint. And I said, I did not spill the paint. They said, yes, you did. 
Oh, that added to my shame. And I carried that with me until 2020. And I was a 50-year-old woman in 2020 and everything shut down. And I know we all have a story about where we were and what we were doing and how it affected us. I was in a space of writing and create, writing poems and joining groups and reading my poetry out loud. And there was also a segment with creativity of art. I was so blocked and I had to go back to that four-year-old experience and say, are you kidding? That's still affecting me. And so I bought a whole bunch of canvas and for Christmas, I said, give me paint supplies and I bought the right paint. And it was, um, I was just watching people as they float. Now I started painting. And I found my own process with it. And it's very therapeutic. And that's happiness for me. I've since tried to be in different groups. And people say, Art, if you don't actually know how to make an object, you don't know how to paint. Art, if you're not painting it to sell, why do it? Well, I have a house filled with my canvas. And I love it. And it's for me and it's my therapy and it's my happiness journey. So what is that for you? That's my question. As I said, happiness has been studied. A certain percentage is genetic. How they studied it, they took over 800 sets of twins, fraternal and identical, and they studied them. And they looked at different factors looking for a single genetic component. Okay, so some of those factors, and this is what attributes to happiness, if you will. Okay, self-acceptance. So I'm okay in my skin with myself. I have pretty good self-esteem. How genetic is that? Autonomy. Autonomy is a huge factor when it comes to happiness. We want to have a sense of control over our own lives. And what we can't control, happy people know when to let go. I hear happiness researchers say that. Are we growing as a human being or are we stuck? Well, in certain areas, I was stuck when it came to speaking to people even, not just in front of people, but when it came to painting. Uh, so I've overcome those areas. And so i no, that's not genetic for me. It was um, a response, the nurture to my environment and uh, things that happened to me at a very young age. Positive relationships. So they looked at the relationships that these twins had. Pursuit of goals and having a sense of control. Control is very important for happiness. And I'm not talking about controlling other people, but just a sense of control of my life and the trajectory that my life is going in. Am I creating a life and living a life that I want? Not that it's perfect. So they studied all of this and they said, there's not one factor for happiness. Um, it's genetic for sure, at least 50%, and it's a mosaic. So different twins had different genetic predisposition for happiness um, with those factors. So that just fascinated them. Then there's the 80-year study on happiness that started in 1938 at Harvard. 
Uh, and then another researcher took it over and started studying inner city men in the Boston area. And they followed then their families and their offspring. Um, and this was going to their homes and having interviews, running medical tests, recording them as they interacted with the loved ones. And what did they find? It really didn't matter if they were from Harvard or this uh, lower socioeconomic class. Like some of the people at the time, and this was back in the 70s when they started that second cohort so they could compare, some of them didn't even have basic utilities. Uh, so they really did come out of physical poverty. What they found, happiness was not determined by fame, or fortune. And just a by note, the younger generations today in the 2000s have a perception that happiness comes from being famous and wealthy. And that's what they're seeking. And if you think about our culture, how we're on social media, we post the best. We don't talk about the rest. And now some people do, and uh, they have vlogs and blogs to think about uh, some of the sites where you're posting photos or you're talking about your vacation. I mean, we want to talk about the best part and let people know, oh, I'm having a great time. And there's a comparison that happens and that affects people. Um, that affects how people's happiness. Uh, social media usage is not good for our mental health. We need to regulate it. We need to put it in its place just for it to have one place in our life. And we are here to talk about happiness habits. So they, it wasn't about fame. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about that Harvard degree or that position even. It was about one thing and it really surprised the researchers. And that was connection. Now, loneliness is a epidemic, uh, maybe even a pandemic because it's worldwide. About 11 to 12% of the population worldwide recently stated in the World Happiness Report that they don't feel like they have someone that they can depend on. Loneliness kills. It's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so loneliness isn't about being solo. It's not about your partner status. It's about connection. So you can be in a relationship or in a group of people and still feel lonely. So the social connection that they were talking about was a higher factor than cholesterol levels at age 50 to determine health at age 80. Uh, and people at age 80 who had pain on those days when they experienced the pain, if they could acknowledge, hey, this person, I can depend on them, they still could report a happy mood. So it's a really powerful study to look at and to review because fame and wealth, we won't be happy. I had a university professor. He told us when I was in college, that he thought he would be happy when he earned his PhD, that day came and he was very empty. That really stuck with me. I thought, really? Like you got a PhD, you accomplished something. And meaningful accomplish is part of happiness, setting goals. Uh, but see, he based everything 
on that one accomplishment. And it goes a lot deeper than that. Happiness is multifaceted. So we're talking about setting goals, which is a really good thing and accomplishing and being motivated from within. Studies have shown that being motivated externally don't bring happiness and true motivation. So external, like we talk about, give the employees bonuses because they value that. Give them uh, time off. We value that. Give them more pay. Um, and the research shows that for true happiness and true motivation and engagement and long lasting productivity, if you're wondering why do people leave, it's because of that lack of internal motivation. And the way to get that internal motivation is to set goals and accomplish them in ways that are meaningful. Um, and there's a model of well being called PERMA developed by Martin Seligman. And it's positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaningful accomplishment. And when we do that, we get motivation because our brain releases dopamine and it reinforces. And so from chemicals being released in our brain, we want to do more of that accomplishment, more of that task, focus more on meeting that goal because it feels good. And when our neurons are firing around that goal, they're wiring the more we do it. Think of reps. Think of when you go to the gym. How many times are you going to focus on that weight and that muscle group and do reps before you can go on to the higher weight? Um, and our trainer will tell us so many reps so many times. Now you're ready to move forward. Um, and so that's how it is with building habits and with happiness habits. We also have a chemical called serotonin that's released. And that's released when we exercise. It's released when we eat well. It's released when we find social connection. Um, and so we hear about that. There's low serotonin that contributes to depression. A lot of the antidepressants will increase serotonin. These are natural ways to get those chemicals flowing is to find connection. Um, and so you may say, well, I'm just alone. <laughs> I don't have relationships. And I'm not laughing at that. I'm just saying because 11, 12%, I'm going to say you are not alone. You just have not connected. You haven't seen the opportunity. And maybe it's because you have let yourself get into this rut. And the more you practice the happiness habits, the more your eyes are going to open to the opportunities around you for you to realize you're really not alone. There are opportunities for connection and you may need to start out with nature and saying, oh, you know, nature is beautiful. I'm connected. An animal, um, a plant, I'm connected. And just, you know, that's connection. And we are talking about social connection, but you want to start where you're at. Are you connected with yourself? And that sounds really abstract. Or are you afraid of your emotions and to feel them? Because if you're not feeling emotions and experiencing them and talking about them, journaling about them, there's a disconnect. And so we're talking about connecting even with ourselves. Um, what about your faith? 
What are your spiritual beliefs? How connected are you with that? Then you find, oh, these are my values. This is what I value. And that helps you to gravitate towards. Is it a nature hiking group? Is it an animal park with my pet to go meet connections? Is it the house of worship? Because I I have these um, loves and interests in my life. So that's how you can start on your pathway to connection. Then there are endorphins. Okay, now what is so cool about endorphins? They are the natural opioid. And so you've heard of the runner's high, uh, that there's just this amazing feeling of running through the pain. It's the same part of the brain that we experience excitement, where we experience that, <gasps> that shock, that I am so like nervous about this, same part of the brain. So if something's stressing us, have you ever felt so stressed and then there was a chemical release, whether you realized it or not, and it helped calm you because that stress kind of got so intense and it kind of broke like a fever would break, uh, that's chemicals being released to help us. And they are natural opioids and they're called endorphins. So it's not, stress isn't a bad thing. It just is. And uh, so we definitely have chemicals that occur to us when we are practicing happiness habits. Um, now I'm giving a whole overview of some concepts. I'm just touching on them right now. We go a lot more in detail in the um, further lectures that we have and in the articles. Pay attention to those articles because they start off with habits and then they start to develop into how to practice the habits with specific situations that we encounter. And that's an exciting evolution because it becomes very practical. What have I said to you that for the next 30 days, you have to journal three things every day that you're grateful for, and you can't repeat the three things for 30 days. That's an exercise that Sean Aker out of Harvard conducted. He looked at participants' brains before with the fMRI, and then he scanned the brain after this exercise, and he saw rewiring of the brain that areas were more lit up. So when we're looking for opportunity in our life, not realizing how connected we are, practice gratitude. I just gave you a nugget right there. Um, another exercise, it actually was initiated by Sigil Barsad in Yale. And she had participants looking at each other and she was studying the mirror neurons. And this is an involuntary response in our brain. Just think when you see someone hurt um, and they're playing ball and they're tackled. And, and what does the crowd do? Ouch, that's involuntary because in our brain, it's like it happened to us. So there's an exercise, it's called the smile experiment. It's been repeated many times. And so if you sit there and you smile, and tell the person next to you, try not to smile and time it and see how long that takes. It's involuntary. That person is going to smile. That's how powerful smiling 
is, um, that it's contagious. Emotions are contagious. So we want to be happiness ambassadors and bring happiness to the atmosphere. And it's not about, ooh, I'm going to say it the right way and I'm going to focus my brain and, ooh, I have to be positive. No, it's about being human and feeling and experiencing and crying and expressing and letting go with what we have out of our control and having wisdom to know the difference. Um, so what's in my control, I'm going to set goals, I'm going to problem solve, I'm going to take care of myself and the rest, let it go. And if it keeps coming back, because I am asked by, by my clients, what do I do when it keeps coming back, when the thoughts keep coming back? You're going to keep redirecting them. You stop it right there. You thought stop and practice gratitude. Because remember, gratitude has been studied. And these are multiple studies now. And because we have the technology to scan the brain, we can see the benefit physically now of gratitude. So take a stop. I'm going to stop you thought. And say it out loud what you're grateful for, and it's going to help you thought stop. And then go back to what you're doing. Well, what happens if the thought comes back again? Well, if it's a pattern, it will. And you're disrupting that pattern. Take a walk. Get some fresh air. Take deep breaths. Physical activity. Be in nature. Uh, there are nature studies. There's one where they took disadvantaged youth and veterans who had post-traumatic stress disorder in a whitewater rafting trip. And they studied their emotions and found that it was healing for the trauma to find awe in nature. And so adventure is a good thing, being in awe of something and exaggerate that awe. It will help us heal. I don't know if we understand it all, um, I'd be excited to see that repeated and to see what we learn even further about that. Uh, there's the what went well exercise at nighttime. Put away your devices at least an hour before you go to bed. If you want to have a TV, uh, if you want to do some reading, it's great, but you don't have your phone, don't have social media, just be off the internet and think on what went well. And that's what you're going to rest on. And studies have been done with that, uh, where you um, wake up the next day and it's like a restful piece. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. This is an exercise that you continually practice. Um, also, say to people, you know, I appreciate this. Thank you. Uh, Send a text. Thank you. Show some appreciation. And if you might say, well, I can think of things people have done for me, but this one person, I can't really think of one thing. You may need to journal around that. Talk about that. Think about that a little more. They've done something that you could say, you know, when you come into the office and you make that pot of coffee, I know it's not for one person, it's for all of us, but I really appreciate that. Thank you. And they may have not been doing it for one person. Maybe it's for themselves. They're for the first one there and they want coffee, but still acknowledge something with everyone in your environment, home, work, community, 
that you are grateful for. Do it as much in person. A handwritten note is fantastic. If you need to do a text, do a text. And that will increase happiness. So everybody has a story. I would like to know what is your story. And as you go through the tutorials and learn and practice, just know that everything is researched. Everything is empirically based. It's been proven to work. So it's up to us to build that muscle. Just like at the gym, if we do reps and if we follow that, um, and it's not just reps, 15 reps. It's 15 reps. Oops. Rest. Pick it up again. 15 reps. Rest. And then a third, three reps of the same action and the same weight. And then we go to another muscle group. Wow. So that's how building these happiness habits is. Happiness is work. And the researchers will even say happiness is love because it's grounded in connection. Um, and have these conversations with people. You are the happiness expert now because you are learning about this. And think about your story. What is your story of happiness? And break through what's blocking you and be inspired. And you may say, I'm at a job. It's just a job. I don't enjoy it. It's not meaningful. And the motivation isn't from the inside. Then something that interests you as a hobby, start there. And you'll increase your happiness just by doing that because you're doing something that you enjoy. You may say, oh, I never thought of doing that. Don't worry about doing it well or doing it well enough to sell. You're not doing that for that reason. And nothing is ever a waste when we're doing it to learn and grow and connect and increase happiness. So I wish you the best on your journey.